Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today we are continuing our conversation with Jesse Pollack, co-author of Death on the Devil's Teeth, The Strange Murder That Shocked Suburban New Jersey, which has been published in a new revised edition by the History Press. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a short review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find us, and we really are very grateful. Thanks as always for listening. Let's dive back in. Jesse, welcome back to Crime Capsule. So glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me back on. Let's just jump right into this book issue because uh, there's some things that need to be said to appreciate why your volume is so noteworthy. Now, for for those folks, uh, our listeners, who do not uh, normally spend their waking hours toiling over manuscripts and page proofs and uh, <laughs> footnotes and endnotes and all those other things, you know, that, that make the, the making of books such a weary endeavor. Um, it, it has to be said right up front that it's rare enough for a book to go into an updated or revised edition, but it's especially especially rare for the history press in particular to do an updated revised enhanced edition based on you know what they had published previously they just as a publisher they're not known for doing that and in fact they tell you right up front they say you're going to have to make a, a a really strong argument for why we would ever do a different version of your book than the one that we're putting out initially um, it's just part of the way they do business and it's understandable and it just means that you have to have all your ducks in a row right when you you know sort of click send on the final 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 version you have to be absolutely confident that this sucker is going to stand the test of time and that there's nothing more to say etc cetera, etc cetera. okay um, you guys first published death on the devil's teeth in 2015 and here we are seven eight years later and you're holding this updated edition in your hands. Why, <laughs> Jesse? I mean, <laughs> you've 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 parted the Red Sea. How did you do it? Well, I, it also needs to be said too. Um, thank God for History Press because when Mark and I teamed up to work on this book in 2013, I had been about a year into my research by this point. And I said, you know, I, I got to bring Mark in on this because he was working on it years before me. And it's it's the right thing to do, because one, you know, this was his baby at the magazine. And two, you know, again, two heads are better than one. And he had already done some legwork. It's like, let's see what we can both come up with and see where it takes us. And again, this is 2013. By the time we had a draft ready, uh, it was 2014. And it was before the big true crime boom. Everyone, sh we couldn't even get an agent. We queried something like 50 agents and 49 said no. It was, it was kind of like the Beatles when they were trying to get a record deal where they were telling them, nah, guitar groups are on the way out, Mr. Epstein. We were being told true crime's on its way out. No, no one reads that. Everybody's embarrassed. It doesn't sell. But we got one agent who said, no, I want to know more about this story. I think this needs to be a book. And that was our agent, Eric Myers. And he ran into the same problem that we ran into securing him. He tried shopping it to all of these publishers. And they were like, nah, Eric, sorry. Uh, we love Weird New Jersey. But um, yeah, no, true crime just doesn't sell right now. And 
History Press was the only one that would take a chance on us. They said, no, we, we could see why this is a pretty compelling story. So they gave us a chance and very lucky for them, too, because I'm sure that, you know, uh, this book has helped them through sales. It's been a steady seller for about a decade now. And if we had ended up with someone else that was just like, no, sorry, house policy is we don't do revisions, you know, write another book and try shopping it around, but we're not going to let you update and revise it. Then a lot of this stuff probably would have been dead in the water or relegated to a podcast, maybe. So not that there's anything wrong with podcasts, but if you really want to get stuff like on the record as a document, a book really helps. So. History, uh, sorry, History Press was great with us for that. But to answer your question, it was it was very soon after the book was published. We're talking the book was published July 20th, 2015. By August 15th, I was getting phone calls from former prosecutors in New Jersey that were like, hey, uh, you know, I got your name from your publisher. Um, I was picking up a book in Barnes and Noble to go on a beach vacation. And I was like, oh, this looks interesting. And I remembered working on cases that are featured in this book. This wasn't a prosecutor that worked on Jeanette's case, but Joan Kramer's, uh, the other um, murdered woman uh, from a town only six miles away who vanished the same week under very, very similar circumstances. And he was telling me, he was just like, listen, the book is really well written and really, really well researched, but there's a suspect you don't know about. And so he gave us information on this other suspect and made a really compelling case for it. And once we were getting phone calls like that, Mark and I decided pretty early on, like, hey, we're going to have to put out like a second edition because if, if we're getting calls like this in the first month, like who knows where we're going to be a year from now. So we basically had a meeting with History Press and told them everything I just told you about the prosecutor and letters that were now coming into the magazine about it from readers. And we just said, listen, we don't need to do this right away. But in a couple years, we would really like to put out a revised and expanded um, version of this because more information that's significant is flowing out. And uh, the gentleman we spoke th to there, I want to say it was Adam Farrell or Farrell. I, I don't want to say his name wrong. Um, he said, I'll bring it up to the board. Um, normally we don't do this, but you're making a really compelling case for it. And luckily he came back and said, you've got the green light. Let us know when it's ready. And every time we thought it was ready, just before we would hit send on, uh, to send the manuscript to history press, some other thing would burst out this new flood of information. And thank God we were smart enough to be like, well, let's keep delaying it and see where this goes, because finally in 2020 or 2021, somewhere in there, um, after years and years and years of the powers that be in Springfield and Union County claiming Jeanette De Palma's case file was destroyed, we kind of forced their hand through the Freedom of Information Act and got them to release the case file to us. And that that constituted in an almost complete rewrite of the book. It was insane. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna come to that moment because because in this updated edition, chapter 13 is arguably, um, there, there are no smoking guns here, right? The case is still unsolved, 
but chapter 13 has the most wisps of smoke floating around it as far as uh, you know, just showing showing how everything got screwed up or covered up in the first thirty years of this this case's you know handling. And so, um, let me just ask you right up front because I'm I'm I was genuinely fascinated by your uh, chronicle in chapter thirteen of all of these different encounters that you had. Are you guys just like Jedi masters of a FOIA request? Like, can you fill one out like in your sleep, blindfolded with one hand behind your back? By now, because, yeah, we've, we've done yeah, enough of them. It's, it's like every other paragraph, you're like, the authors of this book filed a FOIA. The authors of this book filed another FOIA. You know, and it's just like, it's incredible the volume of work that you did there. Because they just kept denying us. They thought that we were idiots they, they they just thought that we were bumpkins or worse some of them thought oh i don't have to comply with foia if i don't want to oh and that's just not the case like yeah there are certain things that are foia exempt but we were dealing with some of these you know township and county cops that were that thought oh well if i don't want to speak to you i don't have to and then you pull up a statute you know, to them and be like, well, no, actually, under the FOIA Act, you have to hand this over. And here is the code saying why. And I'm going to CC the township lawyer on it if you don't agree. And then they'd start giving you little bits of information. And it got to the point where there were people we were talking to in the in the Union County Prosecutor's Office who I won't name because I don't want to cost them their job. But they were saying, like, look, we don't understand why they're giving you so much pushback on this. But here are some helpful hints and tips for certain language and wording to put in these FOIA requests that will definitely catch the eye of their of the township lawyers that have to review this stuff. And once we got some of that information, then the floodgates started to open that um, carved a path, as it were, for the case file being released. It was we basically had to dog them on it for a decade. And I'm and I'm pretty sure that the negative press that the prosecutor's office and the Springfield Township Police were getting contributed to that. I, I don't want to I don't want to really say like, oh, we were such good investigators that we we finally got it. I think a lot of it was these guys are making us look bad. Just give it to them and shut them up. <laughs> you know, uh, when you frame the discussion in another way or, you know, were the camera angle, you know, like 10 degrees to the left, it, it, one would have to say, we're making ourselves look bad here, right? We're shooting our own reputation in the foot, not these guys over there are doing it to us. But that's a that's a different kettle of Well, a lot of these guys, these commanders or uh, captains, uh, these are old school gumshoes from the 60s and 70s. Like these guys never retire. They just keep getting promoted or like, you, you know, you, you really got to screw up to get forced out as a cop in certain areas of New Jersey. And even then, that's still a big maybe. So these guys just keep rising in the ranks. And some of them have that kind of old school mindset of, oh, no, uh, if I don't want to give it to you, I don't have to until like a township lawyer again tells them like, no, you have to do this. Uh, number one, it's the law. Number two, if we don't, this guy's a journalist and he's going to put it out there that we did not comply with 
federal and state law on this Information Act request, and it's going to make us look bad. But again, because some of these guys are old school, they're like, I don't care if we look bad. I'm a cop. It ain't my job to worry about media relations. But, you know, it, it, it wasn't really until there was some new blood at the prosecutor's office that we really started to make headway, like people that weren't even born yet when Jeanette died, like as cruel as this is, as cruel as this sounds, we kind of had to wait until some of these people died off until we could, you know, make some traction here or at the very least retired. One way to win is to run out the clock. So what I really want to ask you, Jesse, what did you find? It, it was just an entire wealth. I mean, where to even start? Well, the crime scene photos was the biggest part of it because I could tell they were really dragging their feet on that because once we kind of like called their bluff on uh, a few things because it, it, everything didn't come out all at once. There was a suspect in the case way back in the early days of the investigation in 72, this drifter by the name of uh, Red Keir or Red Kira, sorry. And um, what we had been told, th this was the real smoking gun for the case file to come out. We interviewed a retired Springfield police officer named Ed Kish about this. And he said, oh, yeah, no, I remember that guy. He was a caddy over at the golf course. And he let it slip that, oh, yeah, we, we, we had a wanted poster made for him. And we distributed several copies to the public. Now, a lot of entities at the state and government level, find ways to keep information from getting out by saying like, oh, no, that, that was a document that was created for internal purposes. That was never for public consumption. So that's not that's not eligible. But here now I had a cop telling me, no, we had a document that was created for the public. So I was like, I want to see that document because that guy was very mysterious. Like, I mean, his name is Red. It was a nickname he was known by. To this day, we still don't know what his real name was. I mean, the cops do. We don't. So I sent a FOIA request to the prosecutor's office for the wanted flyer. And suddenly they were like, we're caught, essentially. Like, he's asking for a document that we have no legal grounds to keep from him. So they sent me a copy of it, and that is what definitively proved that the case file was not, quote unquote, missing or destroyed. It was like, well, hey, they just sent me a Xerox of a wanted flyer from that case file. So it's there. So once we had that confirmation that the case file did, in fact, still exist, we started dogging them on everything. And we were researching all of these loopholes with FOIA like, well, listen, you can't send a FOIA request and say we want any and all case files. You never use the phrase any and all. You have to make an itemized bullet pointed list of the very specific document you want. And so we started getting information that way, but we could tell that they were dragging their feet on the crime scene photos. Now, we didn't want the crime scene photos because we were ghouls and we get off looking at stuff like that. But as we talked about in the episode last week, a major linchpin in this case was well, was this uh, a murder of opportunity by a run-of-the-mill serial killer? Or was there an occult element here? Th 
that whole ritualistic element was born from these rumors of, oh, well, she was found on an altar or, you know, she had sticks and stones deliberately arranged around her. And the only thing that could prove or disprove that was the crime scene photos. Because like we talk about in the book, if you remember, we interviewed two cops that stood in front of that body at the same exact time and their stories did not match. Yeah, they were, and you even have diagrams to prove that. It's incredible. Well, yeah, because we got four. There was a diagram from what the newspaper said the crime scene looked like. We made a diagram based on what one cop said and one based on what another cop said and one based on what a family member said when they were brought there. So, again, like you said, it's like this really weird circumstance that does not happen very often where... Uh, no, it, like, like, could you imagine if like, say th- the Kennedy assassination, if we were looking into the Kennedy assassination 40 years later and no one could agree on what car Kennedy was shot in and who was sitting next to him, it was that level of absurdity. It was like, oh yeah, we can confirm that her body was found in the woods, but we're not going to tell you anything else about it. And all of the witnesses say something different. So we wanted those photos just to prove or disprove if this occult angle, if it were, was even worth exploring. I had always been skeptical of it, but I'm also, you know, my job is to be an objective researcher as much as that is possible. So if I was handed a crime scene photo that showed she was laid out in an arrangement of objects or on a makeshift altar, I would have to eat my words for all of the years where I said, nah, it's that's satanic panic bullshit and start following that angle. So I finally just said to the prosecutor's office, I said, look, if you're worried about sensitivity, we're not trying to see the body. We just want to know what was found around her in the woods. So we would be very happy to accept redacted versions of this of these photos with the body blacked out. Once we showed we were reasonable enough there, they said, fine, fine, we'll we'll black the body out and you can see her. Well, uh, I mean, see the see where she was laying. And once we got it and then we got the crime scene diagram that was made by one of the detectives on the scene, it was very clear. Like, yeah, there were some sticks around her, but they they had fallen there years beforehand. It was old, dried, rotted out wood. There was no real pattern. It wasn't coffin shaped there. There were no crosses around her there was no pentagram or anything it was just it was just a body laying in the woods that was it that was all what we did find that was interesting though was um we had been told by ed kish one of the uh patrol officers that was on the scene that day he said he was adamant about this too he said oh yeah no i picked up her purse to see if there were any drugs in it there was nothing in there i dropped the purse on the ground then i went home Well, we found out from the case file, the photos and the diagram and the itemized evidence list. No, no purse was recovered, but all of the contents of her purse were found in a pile six feet away from her body as if someone picked up her purse, dumped it out and walked off with it. Now, your listeners might be saying, well, why would her killer do that? Why dump out her purse and then take the purse um, with him? If you, if you were to ask me, I would say he was destroying evidence because her family didn't really make it clear where this information came from. But something was related to them back in the early days that the purse straps may have been used to strangle her. So when I found out that that purse was missing 
and it was the only thing that was missing from her body other than a cross necklace she had been seen leaving the house wearing that day. That's when all these theories about, oh, no, she was an overdose. She died accidentally there, went out the window. The purse being missing is proof that someone was there with her and may have killed her with it. It, it, it was removed. They they scoured those woods looking for evidence. They were crawling on their hands and knees, according to the police reports, um, trying to find anything. They never found that purse, but they found they found a pack of tissues, Ben, that were, you know, next to the body that fell out of her purse. Those didn't blow away. Those didn't get destroyed by the wind. So it's not a matter of, oh, well, you know, maybe the, the purse got blown away or something. You know what I mean? So that was a huge revelation that that just tossed out all of the, uh, the the drug overdose stuff in our mind. Um, but the interesting thing that came out of there, too, was the revelation that there was a witness that was spoken to in the early days of the investigation. I want to say in late 72 that hinted towards Jeanette possibly having made it to Berkeley Heights. We knew from the jump that she was going to visit her friend Gail Donahue, and we had always assumed, well, she was probably kidnapped in Springfield before she ever made it there. Because we, we had witnesses in and around Springfield um, who had run into her that day. She had knocked on a couple doors looking for a ride. And it, it, it just kind of, the trail ends there. But we had never heard from anyone from Berkeley Heights that said, oh yeah, she made it here. Um, and her friend went to her grave saying, no, Jeanette never made it to my house that day. But all of a sudden there's a document in the case file from a woman named Robin. She asked us not to use her last name, so I won't. And she said, um, that she had been reading the newspaper accounts of her body being found and saw the date August 7th. And she said, I'm pretty sure I picked up a girl matching that description hitchhiking on August 7th. And she asked to be brought to Berkeley Heights. And she said, I kept a little desk calendar and I went and flipped back through it and saw, yeah, picked up, you know, hitchhiker, dropped her off in Berkeley Heights. And I I called her. She's still alive. I was able to look her up using her name and her uh, location and we talked and she had she wasn't even aware that my book existed. She didn't know who I was. And I just asked her to tell me I was like, just I'm not going to ask you questions. Just tell me what you remember of that day. While she is telling me this over the phone, I have her signed affidavit from 1972 in my hand. And I'm looking at it as she is talking to me. She remembered 99 percent of it to a T without prodding. So I knew I could trust her that she wasn't like making stuff up or just parroting stuff that she read in weird New Jersey. Um, she said she didn't read the magazine and that was enough for me to believe, OK, maybe she did make it there. So that was important. Um, I don't know. The, the, the whole case file was just an insane revelation. You know, a lot of stuff that we thought was true ended up not being true or, you know, mistaken at the very least. Um, you know, again, the witness in uh, Berkeley uh, th that took her to Berkeley Heights, uh, there was stuff about the apartment where the uh, the arm was brought, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the, the funniest thing about it, it was so stupid. Um, 
again, you talk to these cops and they're always just like, oh yeah, no, we're convinced she died of a drug overdose. And it, if you read the book, like you have, um, lis- uh, you know, listeners, basically I interviewed every friend of hers that I could find and they all said, no, Jeanette smoked pot here and there, but she never did anything that can kill you in one dose. You know, she was 16. She didn't exactly have access to heroin in hoity-toity Springfield. So, um, but but the cops were still adamant about this. And I'd always wondered why, in addition to, you know, the, the general laziness that I talked about in the previous episode, I found a very interesting document from uh, 2003, an, inter- an internal document from the prosecutor's office. Some detective that had gotten this case dropped in his lap, basically, he made it his personal crusade, I want to say, to have this declared as a drug overdose. So there's internal memos between him and a medical examiner where he's just like, we've got this body in the woods, and she had a high lead content um, in her remains. Um, so that leads me to believe this was a drug overdose. I, I, I need your confirmation on this. You know, w- what drugs could have killed her and left lead behind? <laughs> and this medical examiner is just like, uh, none. That's not a thing that happens. Now, of course, that was an internal document, so that's not going to make it out to the public. But these cops talking out of their asses and saying, no, this was a drug death did. But the medical examiner, and and we interviewed medical examiners um, when we put the first edition of the book out, too. You know, I talked to Dr. Cyril Wecht, who worked on um, the House Assassinations Committee uh, for JFK's assassination. Uh, He was consultant in the death of John Benet Ramsey and all this stuff. And he told us, like, no, uh, there's there's no narcotic you can take that leaves behind lead in your system. I talked to Dr. Judy Melanek, who worked on the autopsies and identifications of 9-11 bodies at the World Trade Center. She's like, no, that doesn't happen. But you mentioned she was found in the woods. She goes, if they got that test result from testing her skin, a skin sample, there was a lot of lead in the soil back then from lead paint and car parts being discarded and stuff. So that could have just been a contaminated sample, like dirt got in the flesh sample and that brought the lead out. Well, turns out it was a skin sample. Once the case file was released to us a couple years ago, we found out that it was her scalp that they tested it. So that that mystery was solved like, oh, it was it was a dirty, contaminated skin sample. But again, the cops used that weird lead result as their justification in saying, oh, no, she was a drug overdose. It wasn't even a murder for decades. There's always an agenda somewhere. And, you know, half the work is is sniffing it out. Let me um, ask you, Jesse, I. I need to ask you the same question that I asked you half an hour ago. Just we're going to look at it um, seven years down the road. Mm -hmm. When the updated version came out, right? So this is about a year or so ago that you guys published um, the the state of the case, right? I mean, with all of these these new pieces of evidence and and the new theories and you know even more that had come forward and so forth. And we're not going to go into detail here because we, you know the listeners can find out for themselves when they read the book. It's extraordinary how much you did unearth, but when you published the 2022 edition, what was the reaction then? It's been a lot more quiet than the first one because again, 
when you put the first book out on a case for the very first time, you know, that's going to make waves. But like you had mentioned, a revised expanded edition is so uncommon that a lot of like the book reading public doesn't really like get that. Like they hear like, oh, an, a new edition is out. Oh, they, they put like a new cover on it probably. Or like, like they don't really like, unless you're in that world, like revised edition, what does that mean? So like, it's been kind of like slow. We've been getting a lot of good feedback, obviously because of the, the revelations in the book, but it's not like the press are really knocking down our doors because they want to talk about, you know, the serial killer that we interviewed in jail about this. You know what I mean? So that was kind of surprising. Well, one thing that I just have to say by way of saying thank you so much for joining us is that at the end of all of the acknowledgments and introductions and prologues uh, where you describe how this book came to be, um, you and Mark both have a lot to say about how um, you have really found it to be uh, an honor to work on a case that had been forgotten and to bring it back to light. And it's quite clear that the work you've done thus far is only a shadow of the work that is to come uh, at now that the, these things are out there and people are thinking about it and talking about it again. And so, you know, thank you for just helping her story not to be forgotten. It is so important and we are grateful that you were able to share that with us. So appreciate it. And thank you very much for saying that. And and I do want to throw in here because we didn't really get a chance to talk about it too much. But Jeanette's family was instrumental in this whole process. It was very important that whatever we were doing with this story was something that they were comfortable with. And they helped us out with you know, not just interviews and photographs and eventually helping us get some documents. Um, but just just knowing that we were doing this for a, a noble cause, we we I know closure is like such a cliche word. And if there even is such a thing in a horrific murder of a child, but knowing that we were doing this for them as opposed to, hey, I think we could make a lot of money with a book. That's what made all of this worth it, because like we talked about in these last two episodes, it was a long, complicated road. We had everything against us. I mean, Mark and I were getting death threats at one point, but knowing we were doing this to help a family that was grieving and had been denied answers and denied justice, it, it made it worth it. And I think I speak for Mark uh, when I say we would do it all over again. Yeah. Well, it certainly shows in, in what you have. Um left with us for now so thanks again and we will look forward to catching up again soon thank you thanks for listening our guest has been jesse pollack co-author with mark moran of death on the devil's teeth a strange murder that shocked suburban new jersey published by the history press to order a copy visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com Join us next week as we continue our series on cold cases for the chilly winter months. We'll look forward to it. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.